I do want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles today to the book of James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 today. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Uh, last week we took a bit of a diversion and had a little post-election talk uh, from a few passages of Scripture that reminding us. And so if you didn't have an opportunity to maybe hear that message last week out of town or something like that, we'd encourage you to go to the website and take a listen just to be edified and encouraged, reminded as Christians how we're to live in the midst of a very uh, divisive and confused world. And uh, we just want to be found faithful as Christians today. So back to James this morning, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Uh, I want to give you one, before we look at the text today, just one word of announcement. Usually this is not the place to do announcements, uh, but I'm going to be doing a baptism later, and, um, and, or so, a couple of us are, and so I just want to make sure this is known. Um, uh, on December the 11th, we're going to have an interest meeting. Uh, there's an opportunity that we're looking at, not yet committed to, uh, to go to southern France next July uh, to work with North Africans, uh, Muslim people groups that are migrating out of Africa, coming and working in southern France and then going back home. We have an opportunity there to work with them, namely doing Bible and literature distribution to uh, these Muslim people groups in the port area there in Marseille, France. And if you're interested in participating or just want more information about that mission trip next year, December 11th at 1230, a free lunch to you. Uh, we're going to talk about that trip. Uh, if you want to come, here's what you need to do if you want to, to participate in that interest meeting. You need to email me, adam.polk at rgbcmd.org. Just email me and say, I want to come to the lunch. Um, and we will, that's how you can RSVP for that meeting, okay? If you forget that, just call the office and we'll get you signed up as well. So that's coming up December the 11th, right? That is a Sunday, not next Sunday, not the fourth, but the eleventh. All right. James chapter five. I want to begin reading in verse one. This is the word of the Lord. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the earthly and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, or the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Speak now 
by it, help our hearts to hear it and respond to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, we spent time as a congregation considering and praying for the persecuted church. And hopefully, we are remembering these brothers and sisters and praying for them often, not just one week a year, but that we are regularly lifting these brothers and sisters up to the Lord. But the often overlooked reality, at least from our vantage point, is not so much that we ought to be praying for the persecuted church, but the fact that the persecuted church is praying for us. Dr. Eric Foley, head of Voice of the Martyrs Korea, says that American Christians would be surprised of how often North Korean believers are praying faithfully for Christians in America. He used to tell North Korean defectors that the American church is praying for North Koreans, but got a surprising answer. You pray for us, we pray for you, one North Korean defector told him. That's the problem with American Christians and South Korean Christians. You have so much. You put your faith in your money and in your freedom. In North Korea, we have neither money nor freedom, but we have Christ, and we found he is sufficient. In fact, he says North Korean Christians do not pray for the freedoms Americans have because, to quote another North Korean, freedom in Christ is something that can't be granted or taken away by a government. They don't pray for a regime change. They don't pray for freedom and money. They pray for more of Christ and to mirror more of Christ in their life. That's what we should be praying for ourselves as well. What a humbling thought. The key phrase in that section to me was, was how one said, you Americans have so much, you put your faith in your money and in your freedom. In North Korea, we have neither freedom nor money. But we have Christ. We have found that he's sufficient. As our North Korean brothers and sisters have placed their finger, I believe on two important realities that Christians in the West need to be reminded about. Not just Christians in the West, certainly James is writing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here to believers scattered abroad there in the, the Middle East area back in this day and time. I think that they certainly have pinpointed a struggle in our own hearts, though. They've they've recognized how distracting and idolatrous wealth can become. And they've identified the need for all of us, no matter where we are, to find our ultimate satisfaction, not in the things of this world, but in Christ. I wonder... If we were to interview some believers in North Korea, the most persecuted country in the nation, my guess is that we would probably find believers that are much happier, much more joyful in Christ. See, I think this is informative to us because I think it serves as a good backdrop for James chapter 5. Here in James chapter five, James is addressing the rich and encouraging the poor. 
He's writing here to, to, to warn those who are living it up in luxury and in self-indulgence. And he's also in verses seven through 12, seeking to encourage those who have been oppressed. Really, I think we find two simple pieces of instruction from this passage. We can divide it up into verses one through six and seven through 12. In verses one through six, we have what we could call a condemning word. It's a strong word that we find in these first six verses. And then in verses seven through 12, a hopeful word. It's often debated, especially in the first six verses of chapter five, whether or not these rich that he's speaking about or speaking to are believers. Many, many commentators say that they don't believe that he's writing to or about Christians there in verses one through six because of the, 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 the contrast we see in verse seven. Therefore, brothers, it's almost as he's contrasting uh, those who are living it up in luxury as, as a wealthy, unbelieving people. And now he's, so he's condemning them and now he's writing to encourage believers. But regardless of whether or not the rich in verses one through six are Christian or not, he's writing this to Christians. And so it's a reminder for us. It's a reminder that God will be a God of justice and that he will indeed condemn those who find their hope in the things of this world and not in him. It's a reminder that God will have the final say. And it's also a word of exhortation to us as believers. I think, certainly for, for us, it's, it's much more applicable now in the West because it's a warning, listen, don't get tangled up in wealth. I'm preaching to a rich congregation today. You are some of the most wealthiest people on the planet. If you want to argue with me about that, we'll argue. You're going to lose. Historically, globally speaking, you are some of the wealthiest people that have ever walked the planet. And so this word for us today, I think, is something we need to hear as a word of warning, as a word of exhortation, to be reminded not to find our hope in the treasures and the things of this world, but to find our hope in Christ. And also there's a hopeful word for us as we will see later on in verses seven through 12. So let's look first at the condemning word. Let's do the bad news and then the good news. Condemning word, verses one through six. Is it wrong to be wealthy? This is good, we're gonna have an interactive sermon today. Listen to a couple of passages of scripture. Luke chapter 16, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. But then there are texts that say this. Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day, he writes to the Israelites. Or Proverbs 10, verse 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. 
How do we reconcile these two realities in our mind? On the one hand, we're warned that money and wealth can be a God and the root of all kinds of evil. And on the other hand, it can be a blessing from God. Friends, if it is true that wealth can be a blessing from God, then, then wealth in and of itself is not the problem, is it? The problem lies in the human heart. James begins this chapter with a strong, <laughs> that's putting it lightly, a strong rebuke and warning. He almost sounds like an Old Testament prophet, doesn't he? Come now, you say, or come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is James' means of encouragement, right? This is pretty strong language. Most have concluded that James is addressing, as he's referring to the rich there, that he's addressing a group of wealthy, unbelieving landowners that had exploited the poor in this, in this day and time. Many of the poor, many of those who had been oppressed by these, these greedy, unbelieving swindlers, many of the poor were actually believers that were in the church. And so he's addressing the, poor, or the rich and speaking a word of condemnation towards them, but he's also writing in a way that's encouraging these poor, oppressed people, most of which were found within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What led James to such a strong rebuke? I mean, if it's not a sin to be rich, to have wealth, then why is he, is he saying they're going to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon them? I think it leads us to three things we need to consider about wealth. As we hear this word of condemnation, as we hear this word of warning, things I think we, you and I, some of the most wealthiest people that have ever lived need to be reminded about. First of all, the attitude of wealth. James points out that their riches have ruined. Verse two, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Why? Well, verse three, your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last days. James is, is it's like he's DVR'd the most recent episode of Hoarders, right? That's what they were. They were a bunch of hoarders. They just accumulated things. They lived to get more and more and more. It's like, like these rich had this attitude of he who dies with the most toys wins. Heard that before. Jesus warned us about such a thing we know in Matthew chapter six, verse 19. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal Lay up for yourselves what? Treasures in heaven, whether neither, where, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. We could go consider the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21, where he just continued to build more and more buildings to store his things. Friends, this type of hard attitude is far from the heart of God. 
In Luke's account, sell your possessions. This is Luke 12, verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that do not fail, where neither thief approaches nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Friends, if you want a, if you want a quick examination of your heart, just look at your stuff. Just go open your closet, open your refrigerator and your cabinets and look in your garage. I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty for all the things you have. I'm just saying, just if you, you want a quick look at your heart, look at the things you have. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. What do your possessions say about your heart? I feel like I'm preaching as a hypocrite. I, I, I feel the weight of this, even in my own life. What's our attitude about wealth? How do we see material things? Are we guilty of just storing our things up and up and up and trying to get more and more and more? See, that's exactly how these condemned rich lived. What's our attitude about wealth? But notice also the pursuit of wealth. In verse four, behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. They're crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This is an area known for its variety of agriculture and as a result, the many farms and at least that's what we would refer to them as, the farms that, that dotted the landscape. But what we see here is, is in, in the picture that's being presented for us in this, in this context is these powerful, rich, unbelieving landowners preyed on the smaller farmer. They snatched up more and more of the land, forcing the farmers to go from farming their own land to becoming employees of the rich. And do you think the rich paid them well? Not according to verse four, which you kept back by fraud. See, these folks were not being compensated very well or if at all. And James calls them out. He says, the cries of these that you have, have committed fraud against have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It was a clear violation of God's law. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 14. This is in God's law. It says, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is of your brethren or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his hire on the day he earns it, lest he cry out to the Lord and it be sin in you. It's a clear violation of God's holy standard. Friends, frankly, it was a form of slavery. This is exactly what it was. And James indicts them. And, and what, what this does is it, it helps serve as a, as a helpful tool for us, a tool of reflection. Because I think one of the things when I read this, this fraud and this, this, the fact that the rich were exploiting the, the poor and oppressing them and not even paying them and, and, just, and just continuing to, to, to gain more and more for themselves, makes me ask questions like, 
Would we be willing at any level to cheat someone just so we could benefit? Friends, would would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to maybe take advantage of someone for whatever reason and in whatever way? Would would you be willing to do that, to, to take advantage of someone, to exploit someone, to fraud someone, to cheat someone, just so that you might have it a little better? Hmm. Are we willing to take advantage of others, especially those of us who are very privileged? Are we willing to take advantage of others who aren't so privileged to benefit ourselves? Are we using the privileges and blessings that we've been given of God to serve ourselves or to serve others? the pursuit of wealth. You see here these rich landowners, these these ones that are being condemned in verses one through six, what what they were doing is that they they were doing anything possible to get as much as possible, even at the expense of other people. Friends, that's not the heart of God. We've been called to bless others, to serve others, to pursue others, not to fraud them or exploit them. How we pursue the things we have says a lot about who we are. The pursuit of wealth, but what about the use of wealth? Verses five and six, James beefs up his rebuke here, and that's pun intended. One thing a farmer does with, a, with cattle before sending it to the slaughterhouse is fatten that thing up. Grass-fed, of course. And here James uses this fattened cow imagery to describe these wealthy, ungodly swindlers. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. A couple of things about these rich. They've done this One, as a form or as a means, they've used this wealth for self-indulgence. We see that there in verse five. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Friends, these rich folk were just in it for themselves. They they were willing to do anything to keep their influential and elevated status. They were willing to do anything, not just to keep their standard of living where it was, but to do anything they possibly could even frauding others, to increase that standard of living. They sought wealth merely for their own pleasure and self-gratification. Solomon had something to say about that. You remember Solomon. Solomon was one of the wealthiest and wisest people that have lived. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter two, verses four through 11. Solomon, what he's doing here is he is reflecting upon all the things that he'd been giving. He's reflecting upon the wealth and, and how 
um, how this wealth has, has impacted not just him and, and really his conclusion at the end of the day. So after, after Solomon has gotten all that he has, he makes a conclusion. This is what he says. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, and the delight, the delight of the children of man. So I became great, surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. I had it all. And then notice this conclusion in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Friends, we need to take seriously this description and warning that James presents to us here. I think one of the words to us as believers, and I think we probably have more in common with, with these rich landowners than we want to maybe acknowledge, but I think what this does is, is, is it serves as a warning for us. Listen, there's, wealth is not bad. God creates it. God gives it. He blesses people with it, but not for self-indulgence and not for just living it up more and more and more. He, he gives it as a blessing, but also so that we can be a blessing. Because there's nothing wrong with wealth unless it becomes your God. There's a lot of things in the Bible like this. We think about things that, that God has given, God has created as good that we corrupt and make bad. Think about that, think about sex. God created it, a man and a woman, a marriage relationship, it's a good thing God created. You read the book of Song of Solomon, as it puts any romance novel to shame. I've not read any of those, but I've read Song of Solomon. God speaks very highly of something he created as good. The problem is, is that we mess it up, we corrupt it through, through a means of a variety of all kinds of corruptions. Think about food. It's a good thing, but gluttony is a problem. Might be controversial in a Baptist church, but God has created wine, and he says it's good. It gladdens the heart of man, Psalm 104. But we've made a mockery of it in many cases. We become dependent upon it. It becomes our idol and God, and, and when we grow dependent, it becomes an ungodly thing, a sinful thing, a dangerous thing. And so with wealth, wealth is not the problem. The problem is the human heart. God gives us wealth both as a blessing and so that we can be a blessing. Self-indulgence. Also self-advancement, verse six, 
kind of the same thing as self-indulgence, but James accuses these, these notice he, he accuses these rich of murder. He says, you murdered. Most likely this is reference to what we would call judicial murder. Perhaps some of them literally murder, but this is likely a judicial murder. A judicial murder in the Jewish world was, was to deprive someone of their source of support so that they no longer could provide for themselves and were dependent upon someone else. As these farmers were robbed of their land and stripped of their income, they had become slaves, and life as they knew it no longer existed. They're completely at the mercy of these rich. Rich used their power and influence to oppress the poor. See, they used their influence to advance their own cause. Friends, this is a radical departure from how we are called to live as Christians. We are not called to live in a way that advances our own selfish cause. We are called to live in a way that advances Christ's cause in the world, that advances his kingdom and his gospel. And one of the reasons I believe that he has blessed a, a, an entire hemisphere with wealth is so that we could be a blessing to other nations that don't have as much. Not so we can just build our barns and our, our, our homes bigger and bigger so that we can have more and more. So that we can be a blessing to the nations. Not just the nations. So we can be a blessing to our neighbors. It's our comforts. Our comforts and our possessions should be never something we all live for. We are called, remember, we are called to love our neighbor as ourself, not just called to love ourself. We are called to help the oppressed and the marginalized in society. And we don't want to get all political about it and talk about how the government should do and not do that, and we want to debate those things. Friends, forget the government, the church is called to this. Don't be waiting on the government to do what the church should be doing all along. We are called to engage our neighbors and help the oppressed and, and pursue those who are marginalized in our society with the gospel so we can serve them and see them one to Christ and established in the faith, discipled. So here this is, verses one through six, both a rebuke and a warning. It's a rebuke to these rich, but it's a reminder to those who are reading this letter that God is a God of justice. It's almost as if he is saying to these poor Christians, most of the believers in this day and time were the, were the verses seven through 12 kind. They were the oppressed. They were the ones that weren't being paid. They were the ones suffering under, that, under the regime of these wealthy, ungodly landowners that had, had swooped in and, and, and oppressed them. And, and James is it's as if he is saying, listen, take comfort in the fact that God is a God of justice. God will hold these people to account. And don't envy them. I think that's a word for us. Don't, don't envy the wealthy. Don't, don't, don't think that those who have more and more and more are something to be pursued. If God gives it to you, fine. Don't be guilty. Don't feel guilty when you go home today and you open your closet and you're like, wow. Some of us need to repent. I can't speak for your own heart. 
Take comfort in the fact that God is a God of justice. He will by no means let the guilty go free. And so, friends, if you've been cheated, if you've been oppressed, if you've been overlooked, if you've been abused, if you've been the one that's, that's received the bad end of the deal, listen, God will have the final say. Be encouraged by that. And don't, don't find yourself becoming like these oppressors. Let's not envy them. Let's not try to be like them. It's fine to have wealth, but virtually everyone in this room is wealthy. But let's steward it for the glory of God. So it's a condemning word. Let's look at the hopeful word briefly as we look at verses seven through 12. James, as he confronts the rich with their pending doom, I mean, it's, he's quite blunt. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you, he says. He now turns in verse seven to remind the believers of the comforts that they should have, of their responsibility. Now keep in mind, keep in mind that many of these believers were probably those who were being oppressed by the rich landowners. But also, just think about this. James has just warned these ungodly rich folk of, of their coming judgment. And now he refers to the same event of Christ's coming judgment as the very thing that should, believe, should bring believers comfort. Same event, different outcomes. Same event, one, he's saying, listen, it's bad news for you. Same event, other people, it's good news for you. This is, a, this is the gospel. The same event with different outcomes. Christ came into the world. He's a perfect man. He lived a perfect life. He was faithfully obedient to the law and will of God, and yet he died upon a cross to bear the burden and shame of sin so that anyone who would look to him and trust in him would be forgiven of their sins and welcomed into God's family forever. They would not perish but have everlasting life. And then he ascended into heaven and he promised that he's coming again for his people. And if you're one of those, if you're part of the redeemed, this is a good news for you. So if you're here this morning, you're thinking, well, should this be good news for me, that judgment's coming, or bad news for me? Friends, have you trusted in Christ? Are you reconciled to God through the finished work of Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? If you haven't, friends, that's perhaps the word you needed to hear today is that you would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. This instruction James gives here in verses seven through 12 is quite helpful and I think applicable to many contexts as we live in challenging and difficult days. These believers were especially struggling, especially being, um, being oppressed in the way that they were and James is writing to them to encourage them. Notice what he says, he says, be patient. And he just doesn't say that and leave. You know, if you have a good friend or a family member or a spouse or a someone that you know really well and you're, they're struggling, you just, you just need to be patient. You probably need to caveat that with some things. James does that here. He, he says, be patient therefore, brothers. I know that you're enduring hard times. I know that you're going through significant trials. I know that in many cases you're being persecuted, you're being oppressed, you're being exploited, you're being taken advantage of, you are being... Think about our North Korean brothers and sisters. He says, be patient. But what does that patience look like? 
One, he says we should eagerly wait. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the earthly and late rains. You also be patient. This is, the, this is not a, a patience that is inactive. We're just kind of sitting back waiting, you know, like we're in, in the doctor's office, just waiting, waiting, waiting some more. It's an active patience. It's an eager anticipation, confidence. We're not always confident that the doctor's actually gonna come into the room. This is a confidence that, that Christ is coming. The day of the Lord is, is at hand. I think we often have too many distractions that we allow to keep us e from eagerly waiting on Christ's return. And how, many, how many of you just this past week thought much about the coming of Christ? Maybe a week before last, you were saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, how many of us voted? We voted and said, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Friends, we are to eagerly wait with anticipation. Number two, notice he says that this patience also includes an establishing of our hearts. Verse eight, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So he further defines this patience by adding this phrase, establish your hearts. It's a call to stand firm in the grace of God as we wait. It's also this idea of someone becoming stronger, established in their hearts. Waiting on Jesus while enduring evil is not wasted time. It's a call to persevere in the grace of God. You read passages in the Bible James 1, I mean, good, goodness, right here in chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is not wasted time, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As we wait on Christ, Christ is working on us. He is perfecting us. He is, re he, he is, he is rec not just redeeming and reconciling us, but he is transforming us. You know, we will often go through many difficulties, but those are not excuses to give up and quit. We must still look to Christ and strive in faithfulness to him. And number three, another way that we pay, wait patiently is we do so while encouraging others. As he says, be patient, and he says it again, be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. See these believers, they, they fully expected Christ to return at any moment, and so should we. We wait on the coming across these last days. They're not days that just started happening in 1900. The last days, biblically speaking, are from the time Christ descended until he returns again. All of that period of time are the last days. Sometimes we get our eschatology, our, our understanding of the end times all messed up. We think the last days just started happening. Uh, no. The, the biblical people actually believe they lived in the last days because they did, and so do we until Christ comes again. And while we wait, we should encourage. James says it negatively. Verse nine, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
And you know what happens when we are under stress and pressure or tired? Are those your best moments? When you're stressed, when you've had a long day or a long week, or maybe you've gone through an extraordinarily difficult season in your life, when you're stressed, when you are pressed down, when you are exhausted, do you think that that's your best moments of interaction with other people? Friends, I know for me that's not the case. When I am tired and when I've been stressed, that is when I am the shortest with my wife, with my kids, I am grumpy, I am irritable, I dare them to say something to me. And James knew that. He said, friends, you're tired, but don't grumble against your brother. They're tired too. Get your eyes off the the, the the, the things that your brother has done to frustrate you, get your eyes on Christ. What a poor witness it is when we grumble against one another. Friends, it seems that many, so many of us are, are quick to be at each other's throats today. Last week's sermon, reference that. We're so quick to be at each other's throats over foolish things. And James says, Stop. Don't grumble against one another. Brothers, it's almost easy. Brothers, don't don't forget your family. The very one you're grumbling against, guess what? You're gonna spend eternity with them. You're like, great. Well, praise God. God saves sinners. We don't know when Jesus is coming again. It will be unexpected. That's what the Bible teaches us, but it's certain the last thing we want to be found doing when Christ returns is grumbling against someone. So we need to be patient and then we need to be truthful. Look at verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Here in verse 12, the swearing that James has in mind is not bad words, although we can go to other passages to uh, remind us about our speech. But the swearing he has in mind here is about invoking God's name as a guarantee of what we say. Have you ever heard someone or been the someone that said this? They'll say something and then they'll say, I swear to God, it's true. Just to hear that kind of makes us cringe, doesn't it? It should. It's a breaking of the second commandment. I quoted it. I don't think I'm breaking it. God forgive me if I did. Um, But it's almost as if we're adding that statement to validate what we're saying. Almost to add more emphasis or or to to help people say, no, I'm really, I'm really, I really am saying the truth. And we add that as as a validation of the truthfulness of what we're saying. We somehow invoke God's name and as a validation. Friends, that's, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to, to live, to speak, and enact, and act in ways that are marked by full integrity. Everything that we do as Christians ought to be trusted. And all he's saying here is as you wait upon the Lord, don't lose your witness. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. 
speak the truth. Friends, God sees all things and he will judge all things. As believers, we should not envy the wealthy who build up lavish lifestyles in this world, but we should wait patiently upon the Lord who will judge the ungodly and bring his people home. I think Paul summed it up quite well in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides for us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Friends, do not find your hope in the things of this world. We are wealthy. Let's not use our wealth to live it up and to live luxurious, self-indulgent, self-advancing lifestyles, but let's use the wealth God has given us as a blessing to others to advance the kingdom of God. And friends, let's be patient. Because sometimes we are on the other end as we are being oppressed and being tried and being tempted and being challenged. Christ is coming. Let's be patient, let's be truthful, let's be found faithful as we wait for that day. Let's pray. Father, we, na- we thank you for this reminder and this word that you've given us today. Lord, we thank you for loving us and loving us in such a way that you've given us the truth. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you have given us to consider today. God, would you stir our hearts and would you remind us of where we may fall short. Maybe, Lord, we find ourselves today hoping too much in this world, too much in our things, our possessions, our our, our material blessings. Father, would you help us not to see them as just things for our own lives, but, Lord, things to, to serve others. And, God, would you help us to see, even through the midst of struggle and trial and temptation and difficulty, Father, would you help us to know that Christ is coming and that we can rest with hope in that sweet assurance that he will come again. Father, we love you and we thank you for what you've done. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.